Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Hello and welcome wherever you are in our great country and around the world. This is Judge Jim Gray on the Voice America Variety Channel, and I am back with you for another segment of All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray, as you heard a moment ago. The idea being that if we adopt libertarian approaches, libertarian solutions, we will all rise together. And that is not true in the world today and any other political party I'm aware of. But you will see that we talk about issues, timely issues, important issues, uh, sometimes, well, controversial they shouldn't be, but we discuss those openly. We have guests that are knowledgeable and not afraid to tell it like it is. So we're into that as well today. We are going to be discussing something critically important to our country and our country's future, which is the presidential debates. It's politics. We are now facing polarization, in my view, like we've simply never failed or never seen it before. Why? Well, I think there are three reasons. One is gerrymandering, uh, where the power in, in control sets the district guideline, the district boundaries, so who knows who will be able to vote against the incumbent. They, they don't care if I, you don't care if you get a safe seat in the district next to me as long as I get a safe seat in mine. And that's, that's simply not working for our, us all. Another is cable news. That When I heard that we were going to have hundreds of channels in cable news, I thought to myself, wow, this is just great. We're all going to get a diversity of information. And boy, was I wrong, because now what's happening is that they find what your political views are, and they channel their coverage, in effect, to kowtow to what your views are. Uh, listen to some time when there has been a event, a well-known event around the world, and though you listen to CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or ABC News, and they get the names right and correct, but otherwise the entire story is different. But a third, equally important, is our presidential debates, and it is controlled by the De Presidential Debates Commission, and they uh, began in session in about 1988. They were formed by the then chair of the Republican Party, a guy by the name of Frank Ferenkopf, uh, and by the chair of the Democratic Party, a fellow by the name of Paul Kirk. And they were quoted at that time as saying, uh, it's not at all likely that we'll include third parties. That was one of them. And the other one said, oh, third parties should be excluded. Well, the other one, Frank Ferenkopf, is still the head of the Presidential Debates Commission. We have gotten uh, information about them. And if you look at their website, oh, we're nonpartisan. We are interested in promoting debate. But of course, they say among the primary candidates, which always happen to be Republicans and Democrats. So as some of you may know, it was not meant to be a secret. In 2012, I was blessed to be able to be the candidate for the Libertarian Party for Vice President of the United States of America, along with Governor Gary Johnson of New Mexico, uh, who was a former Republican governor of New Mexico 
Mexico uh, as our presidential candidate. And we tried to be in the presidential debates. And so we got into this really carefully. We were being excluded. Well, they have their requirements that you must be polling in five separate national polls at 15%. Well, first of all, they don't tell you which polls they're going to use. And candidly, if you're not a Republican or Democrat, your chances of even being included in a national poll are remote. Uh, Even if you are in one, they don't tell you which polls they're going to use until they finally announce their invitations always to the Republican and Democrat for being involved in this. So in 2012, we were actually polling, as I recall, at 15% in the state of Michigan two weeks before the election. But when it comes down to it, we were not seen as being viable candidates. So Michigan was then a swing state, and we ended up getting like 3% of the vote because people didn't want to waste their vote, supposedly, on a third-party candidate. The people in charge of the Commission on Presidential Debates understand this, and they link that to talking fair, but when it comes down to it, the programs, the results are going to be clear. So what did we do? Well, we filed a lawsuit. We filed it in federal court in Washington, D.C., and uh, we were unsuccessful. In fact, before the election in 2012, thereafter the election came and went, uh, we got uh, something like 1% of the vote nationwide, which was better than some, but not as good as other. We were the third candidate to win. I, I came in third for Vice President of the United States in 2012, but we pursued the lawsuit even after the uh, election was over because he did it basically as a public service to try to help the other candidates in the future. What should the, the criteria be? Well, as you understand, if Gary Johnson and, for example, Barack Obama had been in a national poll, oh, Gary Johnson would have gotten 30% easily if you just go one on the other, like they do with the Democrats and Republicans, but they only put us in when both the Democrat and the Republican are in the race, and so we are relegated to, to a lot fewer, or if we're mentioned there at all. So what do we do? We pursued this lawsuit. Even after the election was over, we went to the FEC, that is the Federal Elections Commission, Uh, we went to the courts. Uh, Unfortunately, there's quite a bit of precedent that is against us. Uh, The First Amendment sort of thing, Ralph Nader had tried that, and and basically uh, the First Amendment approach for freedom of speech just did not work. So we tried an antitrust approach, and we got a really fantastic lawyer to represent us. It's a fellow by the name of Bruce Fine, F-E-I-N, who does has his law firm in uh, the D.C. area, and he has such a background. He, he, he is a knowledgeable fellow, constitutional uh, issues, international law issues, separation of powers, where this fellow, we, we looked into his background, public-spirited, dogged, Uh, and stands up for liberty, stands up for the downtrodden. Uh, He's a former research director of a joint congressional committee on covert arms sales to Iran. Hey, this guy has background. Uh, He also was the general counsel to the Federal Communications Commission uh, to repeal what was called the Fairness Doctrine. Oh, who could be against fairness? Well, it basically was confrontation uh, against the First Amendment because it required equal time. So before anyone could have a debate, the communications issue, the the media would understand that they would have to open up their airwaves to everybody, which is just really unworkable. And he was 
He was the one who was who was addressing that and and got it repealed. Uh, and then actually there was a motion or movement to get it back, but Ronald Reagan uh, vetoed that. So that was a part of this guy Bruce Fine. He also challenged the NSA, the National Security or authorities, warrantless searches on our getting our telephone data. This man stands up for liberty, international human rights uh, against extrajudicial torture and killings challenged governments in court on those things. He's also challenged the presidential war powers, that is, getting a declaration of war from Congress is required by the Constitution. Uh, it is honored in the breach since the World War II. So this is a fellow that really is multidimensional, and we were proud to have him represent us. Uh, he actually played uh, basketball for University of California, was a starting guard on the Golden Bears. Boy, that, pu that puts him into a whole different status from my standpoint. So this was the fellow that we retained to represent us uh, against the Commission on Presidential Debates. And he is my guest today, Bruce Fine. Welcome. Take a bow for being who you are. And, uh, and thank you for being with us. Well, thank you for that uh, effusion of accolades. Uh, Jim, I want to alert the audience, of course, that uh, nothing you said was under oath, uh, just so that they know you're given some kind of liberties there as being the host. Well, understood, <laughs> but uh, you, you didn't see my right hand going up before I did this, <laughs> but, but, but one way or the other. Uh, this man graduated from Cal, uh, actually went to Harvard Law School as well, and was an associate deputy attorney general in the Reagan administration. So, Bruce, uh, tell us a little bit about your background that, that I didn't fill in. Uh, what, was your, what was your free throw percentage at Cal? Uh, no, I think I had about 90%. That was, you know, at that at stage, you didn't have to be six feet nine to be a guard, you know. <laughs> you still could be a, an ordinary human mortal and play. Uh, and that was the era that they had. I think uh, Kareem uh, Jabbar was playing at UCLA. They had quite a. It was in the heyday of uh, uh, Mr. Wooten. Uh, so it was exciting times there. But really, my saving grace is that I didn't grow to be six feet nine and I did more important things uh, in life, thinking of, of justice, liberty, the sacrifices at Lexington and Concord and Valley Forge that you know, gave liberty to everyone today, that we can march to our own drummer, uh, listen to our own music. Uh, that's the greatness of the United States as its conception, even though it was marred with uh, warts. Uh, we worked to eliminate them with uh, ending slavery and women's suffrage, and we much more open. But that's what we've lost, I think, today, uh, Jim, is that no longer is liberty the center of our constitutional universe. We just get bigger and bigger governments. We have the uh, government run by a military-industrial conflict that inflates danger 50-fold to go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. We will soon be paying the carrying cost alone on our uh, debt-fueled uh, uh, military-industrial complex, exceeding the, the actual uh, cost of the Defense Department, something like $750 billion to a $1 trillion a year. Out of our current $22 trillion national debt and soaring, half of that is attributable to these wars that basically accomplish nothing. They're not wars in self-defense. Uh, they're wars basically of conquest, this theory that we have to be preemptive everywhere in the world because there's a tiny fraction of a chance that someone could attack us rather than focusing on what I call invincible self-defense. Um, and you know, that's what I really devote a huge portion of my time to. Uh, up in Congress, uh, having resolutions declaring presidential wars impeachable offenses, uh, and because everyone will accuse 
uh, the sponsors of being anti-Trump, not having it take effect until the next presidential inauguration in 2021, making it clear that the prosecution of an impeachable offense of this sort would lapse if the president comes into compliance. But most of the audience, Jim, doesn't know that under our current legal architecture, the president, based upon secret evidence, uh, can kill anybody he wants to without any accountability. He plays prosecutor, judge, jury, and executioner. And if he says you're a national security threat, boom, citizen, non-citizen, drone, non-drone, you're, uh, you're vaporized. Uh, and that by itself is truly frightening, uh, even if there's restraint in the executive branch, because we, our liberties, shouldn't depend upon restraint. They should depend upon the Constitution and the law. Uh, but those are just a sample of, of the kinds of uh, what I call degeneration that we've witnessed in our constitutional dispensation with the end of separation of powers that is uh, so concerning. And really, it's remarkable that the public, the presidential debates you referred to, don't raise the issue at all. Think of the debates between uh, Hillary Clinton and, and, uh, and Mr. Trump during the 2016. The war issue, not a single question, zero. No one says... If you're president, will you exercise more power than King George uh, III did over American colonists that provoked the American Revolution? A good question, right? We really don't want to go back to kingship. Not a single question. They all, both the candidates, assume they could go to war on their own. They could uh, spy on us on their own, do treaties on their own, uh, all the kinds of things that uh, provoked our minute-minute at Lexington Concord to fight against, uh, basically down the drain for the time being, unless the Congress and the American people awaken to their peril. Yes, Bruce, you know, you've said a bunch there. I just finished reading a book called Red Notice by a guy named Bill Browder, who talked about the Putin administration in Russia. And he was he's, he is a violent fellow, and he's been killing people and incarcerating and torturing and the rest. But I was horrified to think that, you know, our president, seemingly much more law, lawful, uh, would be able to do the same thing, yes, under certain circumstances. But we must have the separation of powers. That is huge. Hugely important. And Bruce, what you probably don't know is that I have recently just finished writing a musical about the Constitutional Convention. It's called Convention, the Birth of America, and we're working wow. on uh, getting it getting it forwarded. But so I've been looking at the Constitutional Convention, and of course the 55 delegates there disagreed on many things. You know, big states, small states, slave free, whatever. But the thing. The most important thing to each of those 55 delegates was the most important function of government is protecting our liberties from the encroachment of government. Number two was security, but all of those delegates would be very upset with us, I'm convinced, the way we have allowed our liberties to be circumvented and, and eroded by government. And what you were just saying really speaks to that. But when it comes down to it, Bruce, as you know, it's our government. And if it isn't working, then it's our responsibility. So we have to make the system work. And that's what you've been doing in your own way and bless you for it. But talk about expressly uh, our experience, because that's when I first met you was in 2012 as libertarians. We were running against uh, Obama and uh, Mitt Romney and got nowhere trying to get in the debates. Tell us, if you would, the, the foundations for the Commission on Presidential Debates, their, their criteria, and how they actually join forces, not as nonpartisans, but as bipartisans. And I think we have some yeah. documents to show it's bipartisan to exclude third-party voices so they keep 
all of this impetus just to the Republicans and Democrats to the exclusion of our liberties and the, the, the real harm, I think, to the American people. Well, uh, this is a situation, to borrow from Justice Holmes, uh, a page of history is worth volumes of logic. The presidential debates were initially sponsored by the League of Women Voters, uh, independent of the two major parties. Uh, and um, I think everyone understood that they were a quite an addition uh, to voter education as the importance of the presidency uh, climbed uh, year by year. Uh, but when, in around the 1988 uh, campaign, uh, which involved uh, Mr. Uh, G. H. W. Bush and uh, the, uh, the Democratic nominee, uh, Michael Dukakis, they didn't like the rules that the League of Women Voters set. Uh, for uh, questioning the candidates in the layout. Uh, and uh, the candidates decided, well, they had the leverage and they were going to walk then. Said, if you are not going to comply with what we demand between the two parties as what's going to be the appropriate format, we're not going to participate in any debate that you sponsor. So the legal win voters said they wouldn't engage in a charade. Uh, they would not make it appear to be an independent uh, debate uh, when, in fact, it was orchestrated by the two major parties, and that uh, provoked the creation of this Commission on Presidential Debates, which has rather a, a, a specious uh, language to it, because most people believe it's a government operation. It's not. It's a joint venture of the Republican National Committee and the Democratic National Committee. They came together and said, oh, we will then sponsor these presidential debates. We will organize the layout, the questions, um, the people who will underwrite the campaign, the uh, debates, mainly a big business, uh, get uh, advertising benefits from sponsoring uh, these presidential debates, <clears throat> putting in money. It's big business now. Millions of dollars are involved. And uh, since it's, it's driven by the two major parties, they set the standards for an invitation. Uh, and initially the standards were the two major parties and then whatever smart people thought uh, would justify including a third or a fourth if that was appropriate. It is totally vague, entirely subjective. Uh, now, the only, the, since, and this is since 1988, the only time that the two major parties have permitted a, can, a third party candidate to participate was 1992, and that was kind of a fluke. Uh, for political reasons, both candidate Clinton and candidate Bush believed that Ross Perot's appearance would help them because he would pull more votes from the other candidate. Uh, and so they agreed to let Ross Perot participate. And uh, the audience ratings jumped through the roof because Mr. Perot had a different, uh, con different approach uh, to government. He said, yeah, he didn't have any experience with trillion-dollar deficits, so he was, in that sense, in, in, uh, cheek and uh, mouth and cheek, tongue-in-cheek said that he was no, didn't have quite the experience of the other candidates. And his participation caused his popularity to jump from like 7% to 19% from an electoral day. And a huge jump in that amount of time. But that's the only time that they ever permitted a third-party candidate. And for example, in 1996, remember, Pro had attracted 19% in 92 the two the candidates then were Clinton and Bob Dole. They said, no, you're out of here. And they insisted only the two major parties could participate. Well, there was some criticism. So the commission, well, maybe we need to write down some kind of guidelines. 
Uh, but they needed to make certain that whatever the vetting standard was, they had to be able to ensure they would never let in a third party. So they came up with a three-pronged uh, standard that said, one, you have to be a U.S. citizen and you have to be otherwise eligible, the age requirements. Um, you have to be on enough ballots in the state level so that you could arguably, theoretically, win a majority of electoral votes. And then the third one was the one that we actually challenged under the antitrust laws. He said, well, uh, we have to attract 15% uh, of popular uh, votes in five uh, nationally sponsored uh, polls. They don't tell you who has to sponsor them, as you pointed out. They don't tell you whether it could be a, a head-to-head uh, poll against a, the, the incumbent or not. Uh, they don't say any of that. And moreover, what's also telling, uh, Jim, is that they didn't set a standard which asked the voters, who would you like to participate in the vote? Because, after all, these debates are supposed to be for the benefit of the voters, <laughs> not the candidates. Because under what a our concept. system of government... Under our system, popular sovereignty, we the people rule. So we the people are the ones that need to be informed. Uh, and the, the, the polling does not question the respondents as to who they would like to be in the debate. They say, who would you actually vote for on Election Day? Uh, and, for example, in 2000, uh, the voters overwhelmingly wanted Pat Buchanan and Ralph Nader to be in the debates something like 64 to 75 percent. Nope, they didn't get into the debates whatsoever. So the 15 percent, as you point out, it's virtually impossible to meet uh, when you don't have head-to-head polling and you're just thrown in as a third-party candidate with the two major uh, candidates, and they don't even tell you, you know, how it is uh, that they choose whether a particular poll is nationally recognized as an important one. And moreover, there's no effort to show why it's 15% as well as another number. For instance, um, in order to qualify for matching funds when you're running for federal office at the, at the congressional or senatorial level, you only need to track 5% of the vote in the previous election in order to be eligible for matching funds. And it's typically true, as you know, Jim, when you're trying to get ballot access, that in order to be uh, listed uh, on a state ballot running for uh, Congress or the president even, um, you need to have uh, 5% of the last uh, statewide polling uh, for a statewide office. So 5% is kind of by consensus one that is sufficient to vet to ensure that you don't have a ballot that's 100 pages long and is useless to anybody. And we understood in the antitrust claim that there are reasonable limits. You can't have everybody in a presidential debate. No, you can't have the Roman Colosseum and 500 people there. So and I, a vetting standard, for example, that insisted that to be eligible to participate, you have to qualify on sufficient state ballots to have a theoretical chance of commanding a electoral college majority would exclude uh, the vast majority. In typical years, if you applied that vetting standard, you'd end up with four, five, six, three uh, participants in a debate. That's clearly a manageable level. Uh, in Great Britain, the last uh, pri- the candidates for prime minister, I think there were seven, and that wasn't thought to be impossible for the BBC to host. And in the primaries, as you know, that you will witness it this year with the Democrats, certainly you're going to have more than, than a handful, five or six, that would be true uh, at best, uh, with those who qualify on sufficient ballots to have an electoral college uh, majority if they want. And so 
the idea that you need this 15% hurdle in order to keep the number at a manageable level is just factually false. Uh, it's thrown in there for the purpose of ensuring that only the two major candidates are involved. And why is this so important? You know, it's not a trivial element of any political campaign. Uh, it has been characterized, these presidential debates, as the Super Bowl of politics. So we said, okay, how valuable is the Super Bowl of politics to the candidates? Well, they get 90 minutes, uh, no advertising involved, uh, of primetime exposure to literally tens of millions of voters. So we went and we calculated what was the, you know, what is the cost of advertising on the Super Bowl? If you're going to have... If it's the Super Bowl of politics and you have the Super Bowl of professional football, and we were able to calculate that even with somewhat less, the, the turnout, the voter audience uh, for the presidential debates is about 60% of the Super Bowl turnout uh, in the audience. So we took 60% of the advertising rate uh, that would be charged in the Super Bowl and applied it to the presidential debates as giving a rough and ready uh, uh, standard as how valuable it was to the candidates, and it was worth billions of dollars to the candidates. Free time, uninterrupted with advertising. They're on display, 60, 40, 80 million voters looking at it. Um, and yet, if you're not in that game, you're already at a handicap of billions of dollars. I mean, it's staggering. And that's why, as you point out, there, even the strongest third-party candidates get a very, very tiny fraction of, um, uh, of the popular vote. The other so what element we are, that... What I we are hearing is, here is Bruce Fine, who is a constitutional scholar and a, a fighter for our liberties, uh, and he is telling us how, in effect, this is a rigged game. Uh, since 1988, and by the way, you said, Bruce, that yeah. it was started by the League of Women Voters, and they withdrew, making the public comment, we're not going to be a part of the hoodwinking of the American voters. So these are things that we are hearing, and we're going to continue basically talking about what happened in the lawsuit and how we can now, all of us, can stand up and help bring third-party voices into these debates, which will reduce the extremes, if nothing else, of the other two parties when you bring in a third voice. And we're going to do that right after these messages. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Welcome back to this segment of All Rise, Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray, where we will all rise together if we employ libertarian values. And what libertarian values could better be employed here is to uphold the First Amendment, the right of voters to hear alternative suggestions, alternative approaches. And it is simply not being done because the Commission on Presidential Debates, which controls the presidential debates, is is bipartisan. Uh, that's what their documents say. It is still being run by Frank Ferenkopf, who was the director of the Re- Republican Party, uh, and he was the one who said that we will not allow third-party voices to enter in, and he's been a man of his word in that way. But it's not what America stands for. Uh, it is calculated to exclude third-party voices for the benefit of, in fact, the ruling majority parties, and it just simply is not the American way. So we have a fighter, a, a, a knight in shining armor, from my standpoint, Bruce Fine, an attorney that represented uh, the Libertarian Party and Governor Gary Johnson and me when we were running for president and vice president in 2012, as well as thereafter. So what are the criteria that they should use instead of this unreachable 15% in five different polls where they don't tell you which polls they'll use? And like Bruce Fine was saying, it should be that if you're on enough ballots in enough states technically to win the presidency, you're obviously not just doing this for drill. Uh, You should be having your voice heard. It's hard to get on the ballot in any state, much less enough to technically have enough votes in the Electoral Congress. So that's where we should be. We're not. Uh, And the the presidential debates are just critically important. You go back to the the debate in 1858 when Abraham Lincoln came to the fore. It was a public debate, and he got enough attention by that when he was running for Congress to be able to win the presidency in 1860. It's huge. We all know, particularly my generation, back in 1960, which was basically the first presidential debate nationwide between John Kennedy and Richard Nixon, where Kennedy swung the scales completely. It scared people so much that they didn't even have presidential debates between 1960 and 1976, but now they are bringing in multi-millions of listeners, and it makes a tremendous impact. So if you're not in the debates, you're not seen as viable. So we have our knight in shining armor, Bruce Fine, as our guest here. You've been listening to him. Bruce, take us through the court appearances. We went first to the federal court in in Washington and lost at that level and then went to the to the Court of Appeal where I thought we had some really good precedent to help us, which if I recall correctly, and I do, it was ignored. What happened there? Tell us what the arguments were and tell us how the courts came down. Well, the antitrust laws um, prohibit, well, 
is characterized as unreasonable restraints of trade or business um, in interstate commerce. And our argument was, and especially uh, given uh, the transformation of how politics operates from 1890 when the Sherman Act was passed, is that running, campaigning for the president is a business. It's a billion-dollar business. The advertising, everyone's paying their staff you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, the campaigns themselves uh, concern how business will be affected by the results uh, of the uh, election, uh, whether it's minimum wage or policy on the Federal Reserve. But the, the campaigning itself is a business. Uh, look at all the money that's made selling souvenirs and hats and shirts and everything else. Uh, and it's run like a business. You have to have lawyers. You have to have accountants. Uh, it's not like it used to be in, in, uh, in, in 1890. And that, therefore, uh, the antitrust laws should apply to the business, the business of campaigning for the presidency. And, in fact, the, uh, and, and the presidential debates are a critical, if, if not the apex, of a presidential campaign. And, therefore, the rule of reason ought to be applied to these uh, debates and how invitations are decided upon. And one of the things that we emphasized uh, is that not only are the uh, third-party candidates under these, the, the 15% threshold of popularity to get invited uh, limited basically to the two uh, major party nominees, but also they actually enter into a written agreement whereby the two major party nominees agree that they will not debate any other presidential nominee outside the presidential debate system. It's basically an agreement to boycott any other presidential candidate. They will make any other, not only not debate, they won't even jointly appear with any other presidential candidate. So that clearly indicates that they're out there for the purpose of ensuring that in the American political constellation, uh, the Republican and Democratic parties will remain ascendant and it becomes virtually impossible, uh, given the importance of, uh, uh, of television, for any third-party uh, candidate to make anything more than a very, very marginal impact on the outcome. And the result is very damaging because it prevents issues that ought to be raised uh, to be submerged by the two major parties who don't want to discuss them. And I repeat, well, the libertarians in our in our lawsuit actually held hands with the Green Party uh, to try to have them be a part because they also were in enough ballots technically to win the presidency in enough states. Uh, so it's it's hard to believe that the Greens and libertarians would have many things in common, and we don't politically, but we do as the Constitution. So you are actually representing them as well, Bruce, uh, which yeah. tells again about the legitimacy of what you were doing for us. Yes, and, and of course, we want to understand, I think, Jim, that it, it ultimately the, the beneficiaries are the voters. The voters are the ones who decide. They need to have you know, diverse viewpoints and opinions presented so they can decide. Yeah, and moreover, even if a candidate loses, they oftentimes inject an issue into the campaign that ultimately influences what the government does. Uh, you may recall uh, Ross Perot introduced a balanced budget uh, in 19... Uh, 92 election, and even though it wasn't a mainstay of Clinton's campaign, he then basically made balanced budget one of the chief uh, earmarks of his presidency, and he was able to balance the budget. So it's just the whole system is warped in favor of the status quo 
when you don't permit alternate voices to be heard and force issues that the two major parties would like to avoid. And I say, from my viewpoint, the major overwhelming issue that the two parties want to avoid, stay away from it, is the war issue. There's so much money involved, trillions of dollars, you know, presidential power is limitless, and both of them, hey, president goes to war on his own. If we agree we should run the world. Uh, we don't want to have uh, anybody do anything anywhere that we don't give them permission to do. And you'll notice that's nowhere in the debates. It's not right now, even while 2020 campaign uh, heats up. Uh, was there, you find any dispute between the major parties? We're into Iran, we're into Yemen, we're ready to go after North Korea, China, Russia. We're already in wars in Libya, not only Yemen, but Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan. They were in nine presidential wars. We're fighting not only al-Qaeda and ISIS, but any new branch we declare war against. We have, you know, we have, we have special forces in 172 countries, Jim. You know, that's why we wake up and we find a soldier killed in Mali and Burkina Faso. Where are they over there for? Are we really endangered by these people? Um, well, Bruce, and, Bruce uh, this that, is something. That doesn't even get, doesn't even get on the, the debate level at all. This is critically important to our to our world, to ourselves, to our security. In a past recent show, Bruce, we had former Congressman Tom Campbell on our show, yeah. and when he was in Congress, he told us that he submitted a resolution to the House of Representatives to with, either withdraw from Kosovo at the time, which was Clinton's war, or to stay just to have them either vote up or vote down. And he was approached by the leaders of both the Republican and the Democratic Party saying, Mr. Campbell, withdraw this because we're in a great situation here in Congress. We have passed these resolutions, the War Power Acts, giving the president the option, the, the authority to go into these various battles. And if he wins, then we can take the credit. And if we lose and we don't do well, then the president will have all the blame. It was simply political, but it was an absolute abrogation of congressional responsibility. Look at Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. Only Congress has the ability to declare war, and passing the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution or the War Powers Acts simply is an abandonment of their views. Do you not agree with that? Absolutely, and it continues to this day. I walked with Walter Jones on the same issue. He tried to get the Congress to vote on the wars in the, you know, the AUMF in Afghanistan and Syria and uh, Iraq, and they just, they don't do it. It was Paul Ryan told them, nope, we don't want to vote on any of this stuff. Uh, and it's completely cowardly. But, and it's also, the Congress clearly isn't their election of duty. Uh, but unless the American people awaken and, and scream at them, they're not going to do anything. And that did happen, Jim, in 2013, where Obama wanted to go into Syria, initiate another war. And uh, the calls came in, the emails came in, uh, 100, 200, 300 to 1 against and Congress wouldn't do anything. Then Obama went into Syria anyway, and Congress still was uh, feckless and, and did nothing. But it's a total irresponsibility on Congress. But we also need to remember that the president takes an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution, even if Congress is not. So it's not a license for the president to steal power because Congress doesn't object. The separation of powers is there to protect the American people from tyranny, not to protect the vanity of any particular branch. And it's not, and, and Congress, even if it wanted to give the war power away to the president, cannot do so. In the same way, Congress couldn't pass a law that says the president can 
can promulgate an internal revenue code, and uh, if we think the taxes are bad, we'll complain, and if they're good, then we'll claim credit for it. They have to accept that responsibility. If they're not, they shouldn't be in Congress, because they also have an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution. But I, my, my larger point with regard to fitting this into the presidential debates issue is it's totally, it's totally excluded from the political arena. It's, and it, after all, it, it, you, it, it absorbs like 80 to 90% of our discretionary spending running all these wars, and oftentimes it's understated, the harms. We now have a situation, Jim, we have more people in the, from, in the military, who, veterans who are dying from suicide than who died in these battles because they're so emotionally shaken. There's, you know, it's not like World War II. They were fighting abroad. We don't even know why we're there. It would be like, you know, in Vietnam, who's going to explain to the last soldier who died why he died there? Uh, and these things, and can you imagine that? More, more veterans, these noble courage, they're dying of suicide than were died in battle. That's a signal. Something is really sick about these well, conflicts. We, Bruce, fine. We have an absolute obligation to our people in military because uh, if we tell them to go into a battle zone what do they say they salute and say yes sir they have an yep. absolute right to understand that before they're called upon to perform that which could be a major sacrifice to their yep. or in their lives that we have had a a declaration of war issued in which congress identifies who the who the enemy is what the threat is to the united states of america by our security our national interests and how what our what our goals are so we'll know when we reach them so we have an exit strategy and right this minute i'm reading a book called fools errand time to end the war in afghanistan by a fellow by the name of scott horton and he said in his book, which I had not thought of before, that Osama bin Laden originally, of course, was our ally when the, we, in effect, in the CIA, lured the Soviet Union into Afghanistan because it's a quagmire. We were going to give them their own Vietnam. And yeah. so we supplied Osama bin Laden with weapons and the rest. Finally, that was the, really the beginning of the undoing of the Soviet Union. And then when Osama bin Laden attacked New York City and, and Washington at 9-11. He did that to lure us into Afghanistan as well, and he was incredibly successful. And he, that's exactly what he wanted to do. He doesn't care about us. He wants to get the United States military out of Saudi Arabia, which is where he is from. I conclude to you, and I, I believe this sincerely, had we had gone to Congress for a declaration of war, we would have said, okay, yes, against Obama and Al-Qaeda, let's go in there, root them out, bring them to justice, kill them, whatever, and then get out. This was not yeah. a war against Afghanistan, but we fell for it. Had we had a declaration of war, we would have realized that we never would have gone into Afghanistan. We never would have gone into Iraq either. So what you're just saying isn't some form of ivory tower thing. It's the Constitution. Yeah. And, and we're, we're simply not re even reading the Constitution, much less following it. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Jim. I, Scott Norton's, Horton's a good friend of mine. I appear on his show from time to time. But also, you need to remember that uh, when this goes back even to the, 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 the Kuwait War, the first Persian Gulf War, we were there not really to reinstall you know, the 300-year-old dynasty that was a tyrannical as Saddam Hussein into Kuwait. We were there to protect the Saudi Arabian oil wells. The Saudi Arabia is probably the worst human rights record in the world, perhaps even worse than China's and Russia's. And so we kept thousands of troops in Saudi Arabia after we had evicted Saddam Hussein. And, and the thought was that Osama issued. We're not 
don't hold elections, don't have free speech, don't let women sit next to men on buses. His fatwa said, you need to get out of the two most holy places of Islam, namely Mecca and Medina. That's what he was concerned about, not freedom in the United States. And so, and why are we there? To uphold one of the most tyrannical, worst governments in the whole world. Uh, the fact was that we had provoked by, by uh, our own military presence in other countries, uh, other countries that were oppressing their own citizens, and surely the Shias oppressed in Saudi Arabia, anyone who dissents is either detained, raped, or killed, like you know, Jamal Khashoggi. Um, and, and then we complain afterwards. I, I style this, Jim, it is a foreign policy which hunts for um, uh, hornet's nest abroad, smacks the hornet's nest with a bayonet and, and, it, and it bursts open, and then we wonder why the hornets are trying to sting us. Then we say, oh, the hornets are trying to sting us. We need to use military force against them. Instead of saying, well, maybe if we don't crack the hornet's nest open, they won't sting. I mean, that's kind of where we are today in our crazy national security posture. Well, Bruce, we, we have hundreds and hundreds of foreign military reservations uh, in countries around the world. And I'm just convinced, uh, this was ran, uh, originally Ron Paul's comment, but I'm convinced that we could close them down, abandon them, at least half of them, two-thirds of them, and that would increase our security. And plus, we had here in the World Affairs Commission, World Affairs Council in Orange County, uh, we had an uh, ambassador uh, Negroponte, who has really experienced great public servant, and we asked him in a question, what is the biggest security threat to the United States of America today? And without batting an eyebrow, he said, oh, it's our deficit. You know, if our economy tanks, that's a major security threat to our country. And, of course, spending all of this money in all of these wars without even talking about the human consequences. You mentioned that the veterans are committing suicide. Probably a third of the veterans in Southern California are are uh, homeless. Or, I mean, excuse me. A third of the homeless are veterans. It just has enormous consequences, and it comes back to the separation of powers in our Constitution. The Constitution was the greatest document ever written by the hand of man. Yes, I understand it allowed slavery to continue, but, but eventually it gave us the ability to, to even do away with that as well. But you get back to the debates. The debates are everything about shaping the policy and the, the movement of our country, and it is completely, completely controlled by Republicans and Democrats for their own selfish purposes excluding third-party voices, and like you say, if you bring in a third-party voice, maybe that person won't win the election, but it will, it will help the guidance of our country by bringing in different ideas that then the voters, or excuse me, the uh, politicians will have to respond to. Yes, wars, uh, the failed policy of drug prohibition, uh, the schools failing our children, none of these things have been addressed uh, by the the main two parties. We need third-party voices to do this. So, again, what, what happened in the Court of Appeal, and I understand, of course, that the, the uh, Supreme Court did not take, they did not exercise uh, their, their rights to take that case, but what was the argument in the Court of Appeal in our few minutes remaining uh, as to what we argued and why we were unsuccessful? Yeah. Well, say, our argument was that running for president is big business. You know, it's, it's, it's not, uh, uh, it's as much business as it is politics. You can't run a campaign unless you have money and you have staff uh, and you have advertising. 
Uh, it operates every bit as much as a business does. Uh, the difference is that the commodity, if you will, uh, that uh, the campaign sells is the viewpoints, uh, the talents of the candidate instead of uh, selling widgets. But sometimes they do that as well, as campaigns oftentimes sell hats and T-shirts and everything else to raise money. But the other side said, no, campaigning for the presidency is politics, it's not business, it's not covered by the Sherman Act, and we have a First Amendment right you know, to do whatever the heck we want with regard uh, to inviting or not inviting persons into the uh, debate. And we said you have some right, you have a reasonable uh, limit on how many people can participate because it can't be a Tower of Babel, but that can be satisfactorily answered with the vetting of uh, people who have qualified on sufficient state ballots to command an electoral college majority, which gets you down to four or five, sometimes three candidates is all. And that's clearly a viable deal. But the court went on. I mean, it was really quite disappointing, uh, Jim. The Court of Appeals decision said, well, this is like running for president is like holding public office or government office. And therefore, the antitrust laws don't apply uh, because you can only have one occupant of an office at a time. But it's not like running for running for office is not holding the office. Running for office is trying to get into the office. So I didn't think the analogy was was at all at all persuasive. Uh, I think the court just didn't want to get into the issue whatsoever. And I say I don't want to say that uh, um, they, they just like they haven't been getting into the political gerrymandering issue. Uh, it's something that the courts shy away from, uh, and I think it's just they they don't really recognize, uh, given uh, the technology and the vast explosion of money, especially after Citizens United, it has all the earmarks of a business. I mean, I pointed out, or you just walk down the street, Your Honor, look at Trump International Hotel. You know, this is not a business. It was actually promoted during the campaign. I mean, you're saying that this is politics and not business? And they, they, they make this, I think, artificial uh, division between politics and business. They don't understand that they regularly overlap. I mean, businesses all the time take positions on political issues, whether it's Starbucks or whether it's Apple or a whole host of of businesses take issues on same-sex marriage or, or racial discrimination or Me Too movement or whatever, because uh, they understand that's a component of a consumer choice. Uh, it's not either or. And the court just couldn't come to grips with what I think is the reality of how campaigns are run. That was disappointing. Uh, unfortunately, we really don't have a congressional remedy to amend the Sherman Act explicitly because the members of Congress themselves being aligned to one of the two major parties have a vested interest in keeping the status quo. Well, and in fact, again, it gets us back to the fact that at least in theory and, and in fact, it, it is our government, and if it isn't working, it's our responsibility and it's, it's our blame. So we do need to make the system work. I view, and, and Bruce, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, because we've been unsuccessful politically to get third-party voices in the presidential debates. We've been unsuccessful judicially from litigation standpoint, but there are some sponsors, some, some companies that are sponsoring the Commission on Presidential Debates and these debates. And I think that we should find out who they are, and right now it's a guarded secret, but find out who they are as quickly as we can, and then go to them and say, look, you are standing for something that is un-American, that it is keeping additional voices and additional approaches down, so you stand up 
and take the, the affirmative step of making the presidential debates open to any qualified candidate that's on enough ballots in enough states technically win the, the election. And when we find out who those sponsors are, I'm asking all of our listeners to not only do it yourselves, but to expand this to other people in your social media and make this a public movement to require the Commission on Presidential Debates to open it up to get away from the bipartisanship that they're now in under the Republicans and Democrats. I think this is a practical thing. It's a mountain to climb, but I don't see any other way of accomplishing this, at least under the present uh, situation. Bruce, would you uh, join in with that battle? Well, I think that it's a constructive approach. I mean, another area is, you know, right now the uh, the host sites for the debates, you know, they bid on it. And you could urge, you know, do not agree to host. Uh, even if you're a, you know, it could be college, university, town, you don't agree to host these debates unless they include, unless they have a, a, a more reasonable vetting uh, standard for the, uh, uh, for the invitees, just like the League of Women Voters stood up and said, Noah, uh, we're out of here if you're going to rig the, uh, the darn debate uh, format. Uh, and it's that kind of uh, understanding of the importance of diversity in, a, in our democratic dispensation that's needed in order to to call these two major parties to account. Well, we're, we are so polarized today, and our country is, is putting its foot into so many areas of the world where we, our national interests, our national security is simply not at risk. Yes, in fact, in my view, uh, there is a time if you have a pogrom going on, if some people are slaughtering their own people, uh, that we, if we're human beings, we should probably try to intercede. But you have to decide, is there anything we can do there to be positive, to have a positive outcome. And this should be debated. This should be discussed. This is what the Constitution requires. We do not have a king, you know, George no. III or anyone else. Maybe, actually, if we had King James, there was some precedent to that. Maybe if I would be King Bruce, uh, maybe you could start a movement there. But until that time, we need to rely on our Constitution. It has it in there. And I have as a judge and, and now retired judge, occasionally an opportunity to swear people into various offices, the Bar Association frequently. And of course, always they raise their right hand and they swear to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And then I literally have them keep their hand up they look at me like, what are you doing? And I say, not only do you swear to support, uphold and defend it, but swear that you'll read it. And that gets a few chuckles around the audience, but it's true. And in fact, many ways, in some of the opinions I read from my fellow judicial uh, uh, Act, uh, in judges, that it's pretty apparent that some of them haven't read the Constitution either. So these are things that we need to do. We are a, a rule of rule on law, not of men, and the ultimate rule of law in the United States of America is our Constitution. We should read it, we should be aware of it, and we should enforce it. And we are being helped in doing that by a fellow by the name of Bruce Fine, who is right now my guest, and who's done a remarkable job, uh, not only being a guard, starting guard for the University of California Gold <laughs> Bears back when, but but he is the starting guard for the voice of liberty. Bruce, thank you for being with us. Any final comments as to where we can go and how we can get there? Well, just uh, add what you said about our Constitution. It's our birth certificate. And uh, nothing uh, in more praise could be said than from a British Prime Minister, Lord Gladstone. He described it as the, quote, most wonderful work ever given off, ever struck off by the brain and purpose of man. 
and we are really uh, quite reckless if we're squandering that great, great uh, inheritance, the most wonderful work ever struck off by the brain and purpose of man. Uh, why would we ever abandon such a, a, a crown jewel of civilization? Well, truly so. In fact, uh, it is the Constitution, in my view, is the result of the Renaissance. It was just in the Enlightenment. It was just something that is remarkable that we could have gotten 55 delegates together to have come out with such a, uh, a doctrine. It was found, of course, basically in large part on the Virginia Resolution, what John Adams wrote. And then, of course, uh, James Madison was, uh, was enormously instrumental in that as well. So I, I got to tell you, there is hope. I'm proud of our country. This is something that, that we all should take seriously. We should all stand up and, and applaud when people like Bruce Fine uh, speak for us all. And even there have been times with the ACLU, for example. I don't agree with them very often, but I'm certainly glad they're there, that they stand up and they support minority viewpoints. And sometimes, you know, I agree with them completely. But we must have those voices. We must have more discussion in our country, and we must have more opportunities. Because like Bruce Fine said, the beneficiaries of all of this is the voter. It's not meant to be the politicians. It's not meant to be the candidates. It's the voters that should get this, and the Constitution gives us that ability. We must stand up and support it. So that's what we've been talking about here and All Rise. Talk about the Constitution. Talk about the concept of all rising together. It's found in the Constitution. It's found in supporting the Constitution. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Equal opportunity. And before we put our military in harm's way, we have a process of the rule of law, like Bruce Fine has been trying to enforce and has in an amazing, amazing way. So, Bruce, thank you for being with us. Thank you for what you're doing. I'm proud to know you, and I'm certainly proud to have had you on as our guest here at All Rise Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. So, in many ways, there you have it. This life is complicated, but it really can be made more straightforward, understandable, and productive by using libertarian approaches. Libertarian approaches in this case mean transparency, equal opportunity, First Amendment rights, and getting more voices before the voters to mollify the extremes. That's what we do, and so please join us next week. And in the meantime, remember, no matter how hard you push the envelope, it's still stationary. So we'll talk to you again next time on All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. So I'll see you then. Life is good. Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthen my bonds that help us next